There's a line from the novel Zorba the Greek, which pretty well describes the first days of a retreat. In the book, one of the characters says, self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) And I think we can affirm that insight after sitting for a couple of days. Because we come here, we sit down, and we find ourselves faced with an array of difficult mind states very often. Sleepiness and boredom and discomfort, you know, and restlessness and expectation and wanting and comparing. And because there are so few distractions, we experience these states with great vividness, with great clarity. The Buddha highlighted five of these states, which he called the hindrances, as being particularly seductive. They're mind states which catch us up again and again, where we have this tendency, this long-established tendency, to get lost, to get caught by them. He said, when we attend to them carelessly, These five states cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. I particularly like that phrase, tending to vexation. (laughs) And we can feel that. You know, we know that from our experience of these five states. But the bad news, self-knowledge is always bad news, is also good news. Because when we do attend to them carefully rather than carelessly, then these very hindrances, these very states that when we're unmindful of them tend to vexation, actually become the basis for deeper understanding. They become the basis for our awakening. So they're very workable. And there's, I think it was Suzuki Roshi who, who had this phrase, uh, manure for bodhi, you know, manure for enlightenment. And we can begin to understand these hindrances in that way. So tonight I'd like to talk about how to recognize them how both to recognize them when they arise, and also how to work with them. Because they're a very um, prevalent part of our experience, not only on retreat, but in our lives. These are forces that are operative in our lives. So if we can learn how to work with them with greater clarity and understanding on retreat, we actually live with greater freedom in our lives outside. The traditional way of speaking of them starts with desire and goes from there. But I found over the years that if I start talking about desire, I never get beyond it, (laughs) being quite an expert. And so I like to do the hindrances backwards. And we'll see, maybe we won't even get to desire. (laughs) So in backwards order, the first of them is the mind state or the hindrance of doubt. Now, when we use the word doubt in English, it really can have several different connotations. And from a Buddhist perspective, one of them is helpful and one is not helpful. The helpful one we could call, in, I think sometimes in Zen terminology, they call it the great doubt. And that is that quality of inquiry the quality of investigation. It's that sense of what is happening here? What is the nature of this experience? What is the nature of the mind? This great doubt we could contrast to blind belief. And so that's helpful. That really becomes a vehicle for awakening. The unhelpful side we might call skeptical doubt. This is the mind state 
of uncertainty. It's the mind state of indecision. It's like coming to a crossroads and just not knowing which way to go. And so the mind simply goes back and forth between alternatives, not going any place. When we're lost in this kind of skeptical doubt, this kind of indecision or hesitation, our meditation practice really comes to a standstill. And of all the hindrances, doubt is considered to be the most dangerous. And not not because it's necessarily the most painful, but because it really stops our practice. We don't proceed, we don't go forward. When doubt is strong, it doesn't even give us an opportunity to take a wrong turn and to learn from our mistakes. Because it's like we're frozen in that place of indecision, of perplexity. This, this quality is well expressed by one of my favorite uh, gurus, Yogi Berra, when he said in one of his great lines, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> you know, and so that to me really expresses that, it's like, what can you do with that statement? You just kind of stop. You don't go anyplace. In meditation practice, this skeptical doubt takes some very particular forms, which I think would be very helpful to really pay attention to and learn to recognize quickly so we don't get imprisoned by them. One form it takes is doubt, doubting thoughts about the practice itself. What does sitting here watching my breath have to do with anything? You know, there are times when it seems so ridiculous. What am I doing here? What is its purpose? It's really useless. Or we might start comparing practices. We might start comparing this practice with maybe other things we've done or heard about. Which one is right? Maybe I should be doing Tibetan chanting or Sufi dancing. They seem to be having more fun. And so we get lost in that. Doubting thoughts come up about the teachers. You know, who are these characters anyway? You know, and many of you have studied with different teachers, you know, and maybe with different perspectives, saying different things. And so the comparing mind comes in, and just that, that, well, who's right? And if they're right, they must be wrong. And just these tape loops of thought. Again, I hope you can see, even as I talk about it, that when we're lost in it, in these thoughts, we're not actually doing the practice. We really have come to a standstill in our practice. Perhaps the say most dangerous or deepest kind of doubt that not only works in our practice but often works in our lives is that quality of self-doubt. You know, where we really have doubts about our abilities, about our capacity either to practice or to do anything else in the world. You know, am I doing this right? I can't do this. It's too hard. I should have come you know, a month later. This isn't the right time. It's all of those thoughts arising in the mind. When this pattern of self-doubt is strong in our minds, it can become very debilitating, not only for the meditation practice, but also for our lives. Because when self-doubt is strong, we're always pulling back. We're hesitant. We're undermining ourselves. There's an interesting phrase in English that we use, which I think highlights the quality of this mind state. We say just, you know, idiomatically, we say someone is plagued by doubt. That's kind of interesting. You know, and it really highlights the fact that doubt is a plague. This kind of skeptical doubt. That it does weaken us. 
Because when we're lost in it, instead of just making the experiment, going ahead doing it, again, whether it's in the meditation practice or anything else, when this doubt is strong, instead of just going ahead and making the experiment, doing it, seeing for ourselves whether something is valuable or not, beneficial or not, instead of trying to think it all out, we do it. And then our consideration of its value is actually based on some experience. The mind is not simply getting lost in these endless speculations. The endless conjecture of doubt, you know, of these tapes playing in the mind, is exhausting. It really tires us. In the classical Buddhist descriptions, it's described as the thorny mind, because doubt keeps jabbing. You know, like a thorn. And it wears us out. It's tiring. It leads to a lot of dissatisfaction, to discouragement. The great seduction of doubt, and here's where you really need to pay careful attention. The great seduction of doubt is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, we're sitting and we hear this such reasonable voice in the mind. You know, well, maybe this really isn't the right time. And, you know, what about that other practice? And it sounds so wise that we get fooled, we get seduced, we get caught, not seeing that it's simply a doubting thought. So watch out for the masquerade, because that's what allures us. That's where we get fooled. So what to do? How can we begin to work with it? The most basic way of working with doubt and all of the other hindrances is to recognize it quickly, to recognize these tapes as they arise in the mind, and to note it as soon as it arises, doubting tape. I can't do this doubting tape. It's too hard, doubting tape. Who are these teachers? Doubting tape. Just to catch it quickly and to see that it's just another passing thought. That's all not to be seduced by its convincing tone. To see that it is just a thought. Note it. Be aware of it. It disappears and then we're right back on track. When you come back to the breath, and then you're reconnected with the the feeling of the breath or the sensation in the body, or just a step, the simplicity of a step, in that moment, do you have any doubt? Is there any confusion? No. Because when we're back connected with the moment's experience, we're not lost in these thought patterns, these, these tapes of doubt, And we're really connected with the truth of the present moment, the simplicity of the present moment. Sometimes, if doubt is very persistent, you know, and you you try to note it, but there are some questions that are still resonating in your mind, sometimes an intellectual clarification of the teachings can be helpful. Now, the Buddhist teachings are so vast and so profound and so connected to what is true that very often as we just question and investigate even on an intellectual level, sometimes our questions can be resolved. But the most basic way in the meditative stance is simply to note it, recognize it, note it, see it as a thought, let it go, come back to the moment. That's the first of the mind states which can be very seductive if we're not alert. The second state, which is often prevalent in the beginning of a retreat, is that of restlessness. Restlessness, agitation, worry, 
Now, while doubt is often occurring on a thought level, this hindrance of restlessness is happening on an energetic level. What it means is, or it's the manifestation of too much energy and not enough concentration to hold the energy. That's, that's what restlessness is. Now, there's an excess of energy. Sometimes it manifests as restlessness in the body. I don't know that you've had the experience yet, but if not, you probably will at some point. The body can get so restless at times where you feel like you're just going to jump out of your skin. You know, it's just impossible to sit still. There were times when I was in Burma at, at the monastery. It seemed to hit at just a particular hour every evening. You know, it was like about 8 o'clock in the evening. And it just happened regularly. Where this intense restlessness would come over me. I could not sit still. And so I would get up and I would walk really fast around the whole perimeter of the monastery. You know, they must have thought I was nuts. Here I am, this, you know, I'm 6'3", most Burmese are. <laughs> so this big, you know, Anglo type <laughs> running around the edge of the monastery. <laughs> but I had to decide, I just had to, to use the energy in some way and then it would pass. And then I'd be able to sit and it would be fine. So sometimes it's like that. Sometimes the body is still and it's the mind which is restless. You know, just kind of a whirlwind of mental activity and it can't settle down. We get lost in our thoughts and imagination and our fantasies and it's just like the mind is jumping from one thing to another. That's a kind of mental agitation we can, get, we can get caught in obsessive thought patterns you know, of worry or of regret, where the mind's just going over again and again and again about some incident. There's also a phenomenon which you should become very familiar with uh, because it's very helpful to recognize it. And it's something we affectionately call yogi mind. And it's the phenomena when one is a yogi, and this is true for beginners as well as for people who have practiced for many, many years. In yogi mind, thoughts start to arise out of all proportion to their importance or even their connection to reality. You know, but it's like the mind just gets caught and obsessed with a particular thought. There are endless yogi mind stories, but just as to give you an example, this this happened quite a few years ago when I was on retreat myself, and at that time I was living in room 101 upstairs. And so I was doing intensive practice and doing a lot of the sitting in my room. And at a certain point... I started hearing voices in the pipes, you know, the heating pipes. And at first, okay. And then I was hearing whole conversations. And I don't know, my mind just... So I started totally believing that somehow people in the kitchen... I was hearing people in the kitchen. Now the kitchen's, you know... It's quite far away from M101. But I thought somehow people were in the kitchen were talking and I was traveling through the pipes up to my room and it was all about friends killing one another and somebody dying and, and then nobody was telling me because they wanted to protect my retreat space. So I'm, I'm there sitting after sitting listening to these conversations and voices in the pipes. <laughs> I finally had, I mean, I went down to, what's, you know, I went down and asked, what's going on? Why aren't you telling me this stuff? (laughs) That's yogi mind. (laughs) So if you start having some thought pattern that just gets, feels like it's getting obsessive, 
I would just make that note, <laughs> because that's probably what it is. Okay, so what to do when, when we feel the restlessness in its various forms, whether it's the restlessness of the body, the restlessness of the mind. It's helpful to understand the energetics of it, which means the understanding, okay, there's too much energy, not enough concentration. How can we bring it into balance? And we can bring it into balance in one of two ways. And you need to really explore your own experience to see which of the perspectives will be helpful. Sometimes we get restless because our effort is just too lax. You know, we're just, we're, we're not making enough effort and we're just letting the mind, we're just letting it go. And so it's just jumping and becoming agitated. If that's the case, we really need to kind of rein the mind in, get more focused, get more one-pointed. And something that's really helpful in this is having as your intention being mindful simply of a half-breath. You know, sometimes we have the intention, okay, I'm going to be mindful of 10 breaths or 20 breaths, way too much, especially at times when we're restless. Can't do it. Even the intention to be aware of a single breath may be too much. But a half-breath, that is by half-breath I mean just the in, or just the outer, just the rising, just the falling. I think everyone here has the capacity to arouse the effort, to arouse the energy. Okay, I'm going to follow this half breath, be with it, feel it from beginning to end. Just half a breath. And then another half breath. And then another half breath. And as we do it in that very short duration, slowly the mind settles down. It gets quiet. So that's from one side, when we need to tighten things a little bit, you know, if it's feeling too lax. But another cause of restlessness is sometimes when we're trying too hard, when we're getting too, hot, too tight, we're getting too wound up, you know, too, too much expectation, too much wanting, and so that can make us restless also. When that's the case, what we want to do is actually soften and open and make the mind bigger and wider and more spacious. And you can do this by leaving the breath and just going to the whole body, feeling the body opening to sounds. You know, any move that's going to open and make the mind expansive uh, can help settle things. In this regard, restlessness is like a whirlwind of energy in space. It's not a problem if we become the space. If we can become the space, then the whirlwind of energy is happening, but we're not caught in it, we're not identified with it. By becoming the space, it passes through. So play from both sides, sometimes narrowing the focus, sometimes making the mind very wide. So there's doubt, there's restlessness and agitation. The third of the hindrances has a great Buddhist name, <laughs> Sloth and Torpor. And I was reading one time in a book on natural history about the three-toed sloth, the animal. And I don't know which came first, the name for the animal or the name for the mind state. But a three-toed sloth is an animal that hangs by its feet, you know, it'll be hanged from a branch. And according to this book, it said it's so slothful that you could fire a gun right by its ear and it wouldn't even move. You know, <laughs> and then once in every long while, you know, it'll make its way down the tree, maybe eat a little something, you know, maybe mate, and then <laughs> go back and just hang there. <laughs> well, that's a pretty good description of the mind state. You know, it's that... (laughs) 
It's that quality of dullness, of sleepiness, of drowsiness, of heaviness, where there's just no clarity. It's just like that. What we find, or I found in my practice, it's very common the first few days of a retreat. I mean, it is just a common. We're coming you know, from the outside, from busy lives. Mostly in our lives, we are running on the energy of stimulation. You know, tremendous stimulation coming in all the time. Come to a retreat, there's very little stimulation. So our usual source of energy is not there. So commonly, the first few days, the sloth and torpor takes over. But what's quite amazing is that as we work through it, we actually begin to to connect with a deeper source of energy within us. So that we're not dependent on the energy of stimulation. We actually are connecting with the energy system of this mind-body. And what happens over time in a retreat is we actually work through the sloth and torpor, and at a certain point the mind starts getting more and more alert, more and more energized. People need less and less sleep, because we're, we're connecting with this place of great inner wakefulness. But it takes time. We need, we need to work through that initial phase. There's a more profound meaning to sloth and torpor as well. More profound than kind of the occasional or even recurrent bouts of sleepiness or drowsiness. I'd like to just touch upon the deeper meaning because it has very important implications for how we live our lives. The deeper meaning of this mind state of sloth and torpor beyond just kind of the sleepiness or the drowsiness is the pattern that in some people is very deeply conditioned, it's the pattern of withdrawing from difficulties. That's the deeper meaning of it. You know, so that in the face of difficulties, the tendency that we might have just to pull back, to retreat, to withdraw. It's the habit of not arousing the energy and the effort to meet the challenges, to go through them. So I found this really interesting as, as our teacher Upandita of Burma was describing this other meaning of sloth and torpor. All of a sudden I began to appreciate kind of the depth and the significance of this particular state. You know, the sleepiness is the superficial aspect because I could see it at work in my life. You know, of and for some people, you know, you might have great ability to make effort to meet outward challenges or not. But for those of you who, who can do that, maybe there's the, the working of sloth and torpor inwardly. Now, how are we when we face the inner difficulties? Can we meet them in the same way or do we retreat? Do we pull back? Just as doubt can fool us by masquerading as wisdom, you know, that very reasonable, wise-sounding voice, very interestingly enough, sloth and torpor can fool us by coming and masquerading as compassion. You know, we might feel tired, we might feel bored, we might feel restless, we might feel discomfort, and we hear this voice in our minds. Let me be kind to myself. I need to take care of myself. I think I'll go take a nap. And it just sounds so loving and compassionate. You know, I came here to take care of myself. Now, sometimes we do need rest. And so that, that can be a legitimate situation. But very often, and I've certainly seen this enough times in myself, it's not that. It's just really sloth and torpor in the mask 
of compassion. You know, there's some difficulty arising and that feeling, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to arouse the energy. I don't want to arouse the effort to be with it. So retreat. Just as, as one example of this, and you know, there are many, but early on in my practice, uh, this is when I was in India, uh, I was studying at that time with Goenkaji, who was, he was teaching a particular um, style of Vipassana practice. And in the schedule of his retreats, we would get up at four in the morning and sit for two hours before breakfast. You know, so two hours sitting. So I was uh, not totally new to the practice. I'd been practicing a few years, uh, but not, you know, not a long time of experience. So I would always kind of rush up to the meditation hall so I could get a place against the wall. That was my first strategy. Four o'clock is pretty early. <laughs> and so I'd you know, get my place against the wall, and I'd start sitting straight, and then you know, after half an hour, and I'd just lean against the wall. And then shortly afterwards, I'd be gone. I'd be asleep. And this happened day after day after day. And so this voice started coming in my mind, this is ridiculous. Why don't you just sleep you know, longer, get up, and when you get up, you'll, you'll be awake, you'll be alert, instead of just coming to the meditation hall to sleep. So this, is, this was the voice of sloth and torpor. But I didn't listen to it. You know, partly, mostly peer pressure. You know. <laughs> so I just kept going. You know, and same pattern, falling asleep. But then it was amazing. One morning I went into the hall, I was wide awake. Wide awake the whole time. And since that time, kind of in early morning sittings, it's never been a problem. And it was, it was just a lesson for me. I'm mean, kind of expressed in the expression, the way out is through. You know, that even when something is difficult and doesn't seem to be working, and just falling again and again into the same difficulty, the way out is through it. If we have that perseverance and steadiness and don't retreat, you know, but just stay with it, then we come out the other side. And this is the growth in our practice and the growth of our strength. So what to do? when we are aware of sloth and torpor, either as sleepiness you know, or heaviness, or this retreating kind of mind, withdrawing kind of mind, want to recognize it as close to the beginning as possible. Recognize, note it, investigate it. Even with sleepiness, some kind of basic common state. And even in the midst of sleepiness, we can bring a quality of investigation. It's like we're feeling sleepy, we're feeling dull. Bring that great doubt to bear. It's, it's as if we hold the question, well, what is this? What is the experience of sleepiness? Instead of just getting caught in the concept, oh, I'm so sleepy, I need to rest. Re- what is the experience that I'm calling sleepiness? And examine What do you feel in the body? What do you feel in the mind? You really look, you investigate. So that can be very illuminating. The very energy of investigation often dissipates the drowsiness. We can arouse the energy factor when we're feeling sleepy. And one time, this was a retreat I was doing with with Upandita. It was here at IMS the first time he came in uh, 84. I went through one period where I would just, these waves of sleepiness would come over me. So at one point, I was just sitting, and I could feel the waves starting up here, and then coming, just descending, you know, drowsiness. And it came down, down, down. And as it came down, everything in me Wanted to, at that time I was sitting with my eyes open to stay awake, but everything in me wanted to close my eyes. But I, I, I didn't. 
I really aroused the effort. So the energy came down, and I kept, I kept my eyes like that. You know, you, you know the cartoons like with toothpicks holding them up? That's, that's what it felt like. It's a very exaggerated move. <laughs> and it was so interesting to me because as I did it, even though all of the, oh, you know, I just wanted to sink into it, but I didn't. And I could feel the sleepiness as a wave pass through, come down into my body and out. And then I was really alert for about a minute. <laughs> and then another wave came, same thing. And I, and I did that, it was like four or five times, psh, the sleepiness was gone. You know, so all of this, it's like our whole practice is an, is an energy play. We really are just learning about the different energies in our mind and bodies, you know, and learning how to work with them, how to balance them, how not to get caught, you know, in hindrances. So if you bring that sense of interest and investigation and even joy in playing with it, so that's, that's a tremendous help in the practice. The Pali word for effort or energy is virya. And it's usually translated as effort. Well, in English, effort has a lot of connotations for us. You know, and sometimes it's arousing and helpful, but sometimes people get efforting. You know, it becomes a sense of struggle. There's another translation of virya which I have found very helpful in my practice, especially in dealing with sloth and torpor in its deeper sense, in that sense of withdrawing from difficulty. And that is the translation of virya as courage. The sense of courage, the willingness, the courage to be present in the face of difficulty. And when I think of it in that way, sometimes when I'm in, in difficulty and I think of effort, sometimes I can get a sense of struggle or striving. Or, but when I think of it, okay, arouse the courage. Be courageous in the face of this. That's not a struggle. That's, that's like a strength of heart. It's a strengthening of our heart. Let me be with this. Let me open to it. It's really... It's the valor of being present. So for me, that has been very helpful. It's been a very helpful perspective, reminder in times of difficulty, connecting with that place of courage. So this doubt, this skeptical doubt, this restlessness and agitation, this sloth and torpor. The fourth of the hindrances is a big one, and that is the hindrance of aversion. And aversion takes many forms. It can be anger, ill will, hatred, fear, irritation, boredom, the judging mind. All of these are forms of aversion, of not liking what's present. All of these mind states you know, of ill will and anger and hatred and fear, boredom, irritation, all of them are conditioned reactions to what is unpleasant. Something unpleasant arises, and if we're not mindful, we can easily slip into one of these forms of aversion. It's very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. Now, how many of you, as you're sitting and you begin to feel some discomfort, how often is the first response Oh, good, something to be with. <laughs> Probably not, and maybe some few of you. I mean, hopefully you're beginning to you know, learn how to be mindful of it, but often the initial reaction is, I don't like it, I don't want it, I wish it would go away. We feel aversion when we think of unpleasant past situations. 
You know, we think of someone we've had difficulty with or some, some situation and we can get angry just thinking about it. You know, as I said, I've just come off a two-month retreat and at one, one point in the retreat, I just kept thinking about this one situation in person that a little bit of aversion arose. <laughs> and it was, but I also had enough, I had enough concentration and mindfulness, even as I was getting caught in it, I was also kind of seeing the process in a certain way. And it was just so interesting to me to see it going along perfectly fine, you know, feeling good, just... And then quickly this thought arises of what had happened. Just in a moment, the thought triggers the emotion. It's, it's almost like there's this chemical release in the body. You know, this whole change happens. And then again, kind of dropping back, thought comes again. What's interesting is that really the ill will or the aversion it's really arising about a thought. The person is not there. The situation is not happening. It's simply a thought in the mind. But if we're not mindful, if we don't catch it, if we're not really right on top of it, we don't see that it's just a thought, and very quickly it triggers this response. Even more... um, ridiculous is that we can think about things that have not yet happened. We think they might happen or we think they will have. We imagine them happening. You know, something unpleasant, an unpleasant encounter, an unpleasant whatever. So we're sitting, minding our own business, and then these imagination, imaginary thoughts arise of what might happen And we get angry and we get upset. Mark Twain expressed this very well. He said, some of the worst things in my life never happened. (laughs) And yet our mind does this, and I'm sure you're familiar with that. Well, we don't have to simply get carried away again and again and get lost again. If we can be mindful and catch it and say, oh yeah, that's just a thought. We can feel aversion or frustrated with different difficulties in our practice. Not just thoughts about past or imagined future, but actual difficulties in our practice or difficult situations on a retreat. You know, we get frustrated or impatient. And what can happen then is we start projecting that aversion onto other people. And we're feeling kind of in an irritated frame of mind. And what can arise is what I call the Vipassana Vendetta. You know, where there's one person here who drives you crazy. You don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they dress, you don't like the way they eat. You know, and every time you see them, you just get more irritated. You don't even know them. (laughs) You may not have said a single word to them. And yet the mind can spin out in this. It's really just a projection of our own internal discomfort. We can get angry when we personalize impersonal situations. It's very interesting to be at an airport, at a ticket counter. You know, when you you go up to the counter to check in and you see flight canceled. And just to watch people's responses to that. There is a wide spectrum of response. I mean, nobody welcomes the sign. (laughs) But... It, I mean, people can get furious as if it's personal, you know, as if somehow it was directed to them, it was canceled because of them and something they did. It's just conditions, you know, whatever the conditions happen to be. So that's an interesting one to watch also. So how to work with these different kinds of aversion. Again, the basic pattern and something we really need to practice is catching it quickly, whether it's the thought or the feelings 
that arise, if we can catch it as soon as it arises, oh, ill will, aversion, anger, impatience, whatever it is, we recognize it, we see it, we note it, that mindfulness helps us from being lost, from being carried away, from drowning in it. It's very helpful to remember not to get caught in aversion to the aversion. You know, it's an unpleasant state. It doesn't feel good. So a very common pattern is, I don't like this. I want to get rid of this. Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, who is this wonderful Vietnamese meditation master and poet and peace activist, he wrote something really beautiful about working with anger. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold it with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into it. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. And so when it arises, when aversion arises, we need to be careful to hold it tenderly, not to react with more aversion. And we hold it, we see it, we become mindful of it. So the fifth and the last of the hindrances I want to talk about is desire, the wanting mind. This is a tremendously powerful force in our lives. You know, the Buddhist, wor- the Buddhist word for the cycle of life and death and rebirth, the endlessness of the cycle, the Buddhist word is samsara, and it means perpetual wandering. The root or the driving force behind samsara, the whole of samsara, the vastness of it, The driving energy behind it is desire, is wanting. So this is a very powerful, deeply rooted energy within us. And it's essential that we really begin to understand how it works because it drives our lives. We experience desire on so many levels. In its most grand form, you know, it can become obsessive passion, just some, an obsessive passion about something, wanting, consuming our lives. It can take the form of our addictive cravings, you know, whether big ones or small ones, just that the various addictions we have in our lives. It can, be, can take the form of recurrent fantasies, you know, where we're just lost in our, in our desire fantasies. Or it can be the desire can also be just like a passing whim of a, of a wanting. On the retreat, the field of desire narrows considerably because there's not, you know, there's not that much to want here. But even though the field narrows, the intensity doesn't diminish. The intensity of the desire can be as strong here as as any place else. At one point, I was this. This was in my uh, India years. I was practicing. I've been practicing for some time, and my practice was really going well. You know, my mind was very concentrated. My whole body was just filled with light, and it was wonderful. Wonderful. It's the kind. Of, it's the kind of sittings where you think you're going to get enlightened any minute. You know, and you just kind of, 
So I was in India at this Burmese Vihara um, and, and practicing. And for tea there, it was, the, the food was very, very basic. You know, it's like I lost 35 pounds in India. <laughs> it was very basic food. And what they served at tea was a cup of tea and two tiny bananas. I mean, bananas about that big. Yeah, really small. I had never seen such small bananas. <laughs> so I'm, th- I'm there sitting, you know, re- in this glorious state, about to get enlightened. And the tea bell rings. The overwhelming thought in my mind, I need my banana. <laughs> I mean, it was amazing, the strength of that thought, of that desire. It took me right out of my seat, you know, from my cup of tea. For what? It was like two bites. <laughs> the banana was gone. It's powerful. You know, and so we really need to learn about it. You know, maybe we experience desire here on retreat. Sometimes we can really get caught in lustful fantasies. You know, just lots of sexual fantasies can arise at different times and just get caught again and again. And they're pleasant. Oh, that hour went fast. Well, a great lesson for me in working with this, I found a very good note you know, for these fantasies when they arose. Because there's one period in my practice when it was really coming strongly. But I realized that they don't go anyplace. You know, they come and I kind of get caught in them. And then at a certain point they go and then back to the breath. So I started labeling them dead end. <laughs> it's just a dead end. Because it doesn't lead any place. So if we can remember that closer to the beginning of the dead end road, rather than having to go all the way to the end, it helps. You know, it reminds us, yeah, this is just the desiring mind playing out in fantasy. It's not that you can do anything about it here, you know. So it's helpful just to see it, to understand it. You know, in meditation, desire often comes in the form of expectation, of wanting. You know, you want some experience to happen. I call it the in order to mind. I'm watching the breath in order for something to happen. Instead of that ease of settling back and simply being in the awareness of what's present. Not leaning forward, not toppling forward, not wanting. There's many, many opportunities to begin to see and work and understand desire. So what to do? Note it. As soon as you become aware, note it as the wanting mind. Wanting, wanting. Notice it, a a very, very uh, easy place to notice it, and one which happens a lot, but mostly we just pass over, is in all the times during the day when you feel like you're rushing. You know, when, when there's that feeling of rushing. And rushing can happen, you're moving quickly, you're moving slowly, it doesn't matter. Rushing is that kind of toppling forward where energetically we're ahead of ourselves. You know, it's like the mind is out here and we're being pulled. That's a form of wanting, of desire something. I noticed this clearly on retreat. You know, I would be doing walking meditation back and forth and really back in my body. Just settled back, feeling the movement, feeling the touch. And then the lunch bell would ring. And even if I were moving just as slowly, (laughs) just energetically, I could feel myself, you know, it was like toppling forward into the dining room. It's just the wanting mind. And so if we can see it, if we can catch it, we unhook from it.
The last thing I want to say about design, we could talk a long time about the power and the force and, and the manifestation of desire. The last thing I want to say about it has proved so useful, proven so useful to me in my life. In realizing that in many, if not most, situations of suffering, when we're suffering in some way or other, if we trace the suffering back, very often we will find that it's rooted in wanting, wanting something, wanting something to be different, wanting to have something, wanting to change something, that it's the wanting mind which is very often at the root of suffering. So often we miss the root because it's subtle, but we can become aware, because it's obvious, of the suffering. You know, we, we can know and recognize the suffering. Can you take that as a signal, you know, as a, as a feedback, and trace it back to the wanting mind. And there's one, there's one step to do here, which is really liberating. And that is to see that identifying with the wanting is a choice. When we're aware of it, the wanting may be there, there may not be a choice about that, But when we can trace it back, and I really feel it in the heart, I feel that wanting as a contraction of the heart. In feeling that, whether I identify with that wanting or not, is a choice that I'm making. So when we see that as the root of suffering, it's actually possible not to identify with it, to let go of that wanting, and to come back to a place of ease. Steve is going to talk much more about this in a couple of nights uh, because it's a, it's a fundamental uh, framework of the Buddhist teachings. But I wanted to mention it tonight just because it's so connected with desire and this hindrance of desire. It's important to understand that all of these mind states, all of these hindrances, are visitors to the mind. They are not intrinsic. They're not intrinsic to the mind. They're not who we are. They're not intrinsic to awareness. They arise out of conditions like clouds in the sky. They're like visitors who come. But they're visitors who have come so often and so frequently. You know, it's like we invite them in. Oh, you know, make yourself at home. So we have, to, we have to reverse that pattern a little bit. When we're not mindful, these hindrances really obscure the natural wisdom of our minds. They imprison us. When we are mindful, when we can bring awareness to bear, when we can see them, the doubt and the restlessness and the sloth and torpor in its different forms and all the forms of aversion and desire, wanting, when we arouse the energy to see them clearly, to investigate, to understand, these very same hindrances become a vital aspect of our awakening. So we can use them in a very skillful way in our practice. Sit for a few minutes.
may the merit of our practice together be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings everywhere. Thank you.